Hello, welcome to 50 Plus Aging in Rural Maine, a project of AARP Maine in cooperation, <coughs> excuse me, with WERU-FM. My goal is to take a deep dive into some of the topics we all face as we age in our rural communities. I'm your host, Suzanne Carmichael, an AARP Maine volunteer. Today, we'll be discussing five major health issues facing older rural residents. I'm very pleased that my guest today is John Gale, president of the National Rural Health Association, senior research associate at the Maine Rural Health Research Center at the University of Southern Maine, and an adjunct faculty member in public health at the University of New England College of Graduate Studies. He has, in fact, a resume that's so impressive and lengthy that it would probably take me the whole hour just to read it to you. I'm not going to do that. Thanks so much, John, for joining me today. You're welcome, Suzanne. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to provide a bit of background before we start our discussion. According to the 2020 census, 61.3% of Maine residents live in rural areas. As president of the National Rural Health Association, John, I know you're familiar with the association's policy paper focusing on rural America's older citizens and the difficulties they have in both staying healthy and obtaining adequate health care when they need it. That report lists five major challenges nationally for older rural residents. I'd like to touch on each of those five today. And when possible, John, if you could relate each issue specifically to Maine um, when that makes sense. The first challenge the report mentions is health-related transportation problems especially for rural Americans over 65. And in doing research for this program today, I found a June 2018 analysis conducted by Eric Ziller at the University of Southern Maine, which said that folks enrolled in Maine care, including low-income adults 65 and older, cited lack of transportation as the number one non-financial reason for delaying medical care. Also, the Maine State Plan on Aging for 2020 to 2024, prepared by the Maine Office of Aging and Disability Services, notes that the need for transportation services does not meet the availability of those services. So John, if we could begin with why transportation is such an issue for older rural residents, and what are some of the health consequences people face because of those transportation problems? Sure, Suzanne. Well, and, and before I, I begin that, let me tell you a little bit of a story that I grew up in rural Maine in a little town called Lebanon between Sanford and Rochester, New Hampshire. And my grandparents had a farm. And as my, my grandmother passed and as my grandfather lived alone and became older, we realized he was having trouble driving. And um, same issue as many rural people have is the distance to get to the store, to doctor's offices, to church, to social events. And when he told us one time, probably not meaning to, that he couldn't really see well, but he was following the yellow lines in the road in order to stay in place, we had to take his car away as a family. And it was an incredibly difficult decision. And it was a terrible loss of independence for someone who had been used to 
living his own life and doing what he needed to do. And this is not an uncommon problem for Maine rural residents. Um, the difficulty in getting to doctor's offices, many, many communities don't have their health care is at a distance. They have to travel further to get services, uh, particularly specialty services. And it, so they delay care. So they don't get their routine hyper. The elderly tend to have more chronic conditions, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, COPD than other populations, which needs constant care. And they're not getting that if they delay their care. They're not getting their medications adjusted and <clears throat> excuse me, monitored as often as they should. And then you have the, the other problem, not just related to lack of access to healthcare, but social isolation. A lot of folks end up spending their time alone that increases the risk for depression. There are fewer people engaging with them. And quite honestly, most of us stay healthy and, and during our senior years by, by interacting and being engaged with folks. And if they lose that ability, it's a downward spiral. So uh, people driving when it's not safe to drive is one of the major um, issues, I, I assume. Um, let's turn to what transportation options are available for rural residents, um, either in Maine or ones that are good models in other states. Um, are there any? There are, are relatively few. I mean, public transportation, I know in the greater Portland area where I live now, um, we have the metro system that will go out into some of the surrounding communities. But as you get further out into places like Greenville and smaller communities, um, it gets really difficult. So um, the best models that I've seen are those that do a combination of volunteers and um, almost an Uber type of arrangement where local people will use their cars and um, will trans will provide transportation, volunteer services through faith-based communities, church groups, social organizations are great, but it's not as consistent as we would like it to be. And it's and it is uh, quite honestly done out of the goodness of their uh, the volunteers' hearts. Um, the one thing we do see in rural communities is we are very good at taking care of one another and looking out for one another, but that doesn't mean that it works perfectly. So some level of a paid service, probably a formal system like a bus or a cab company probably isn't going to be consistent, but if we could do the model that I've seen is an Uber style. Uh, the, challenge, of course, is funding. Um, they do charge some minimal amount, but so perhaps local philanthropic groups or community service organizations can provide some of that funding. But that's a model that can work. And it's not just the elderly that we see with this problem, veterans. Uh, I can't tell you how many different populations struggle with this issue, transportation. It's probably one of the more intractable problems we have in rural. And um, it's similar for people that are disabled, I assume, um, that they of course, have the same needs. In fact, in, in fact, in some ways, more, diff more difficult for them because they may need to have wheelchair accessible vans or someone who is familiar enough with helping someone with a disability move from a wheelchair to a car. 
So, but very similar problem as well. And one of the problems you mentioned, the, the volunteer model, um, obviously one of the problems during the pandemic is that um, I believe a lot of those um, in Maine that I'm some a little familiar with um, have had difficulty with people wanting to do that or take advantage of it. Um, I, I want to mention one thing, your association's report on um, transportation options um, said this, and I'm going to quote from it, um, sure. transportation solutions for rural older adults should start with changing the discussion from transportation for health needs to viewing transportation as a social determinant of rural health and community vitality. Could you elaborate a bit on what that means and what difference it makes? And if there are any examples in the country um, that you can point to? Well, I, th I think that gets back to the earlier discussion around social isolation, that the ability to engage in community events and community functions, certainly getting to your doctors, getting to a doctor's appointment for medication or to get prescriptions refilled, very, very important. But just as important is the ability to be part of society and to engage in social events, day-to-day uh, -day book groups, uh, get to the library if, the, if that's of interest, is really an important part of, of maintaining the vitality of a community. Communities, you know, I go back to when I was um, in graduate school, the, uh, there was a book out called uh, Bowling Alone by a fellow named Robert Putnam. And one of the challenges that he saw was that our societies are tending to drift apart. We tend to become more isolated. Um, and I think that's still happening now. I, I don't think social media, although it provides some communication strategies, it's not the same as being face-to-face. -face. Being able to go to church, uh, regularly participate in social groups. I mean, Granges are still active in many rural communities. Um, that's really very important for the vitality of the community. Uh, it's also important for young people. I, I think growing up, I remember, you know, we engaged with adults and older people in the community and we learned from them and we weren't as isolated and separated. Um, so I think that I completely agree with the statement that was made and it's relevant now is how do we maintain social connections? I wanted to mention also while we're talking about transportation options that I tried to do a bit of research to see what was available uh, in Maine. And um, I looked at Maine Care and Maine Care does provide medical transportation services um, for people that are enrolled in Maine Care. But I found something uh, on the Center for Healthcare, Healthcare Strategies that only 11% of Mainers 65 and older are enrolled in main care. And obviously some of them live in urban areas. So that also uh, leaves a large population um, unserved. And I also looked into the situation for veterans and found something called the Highly Rural Transportation Grants Program that provides veterans with medical transportation in counties with fewer than seven people per square mile. Now, Hancock County has 34.3 people per square mile, uh, Washington County 12.5, and Aroostook 
So they aren't available for this veterans option. And in fact, I think it's only available in uh, Piscataquis County. And I didn't know- Right, that would be the only one. It, that's the only one. I didn't know if you had any comment about um, the idea that um, some of this is sort of fragmented. The well, it's, that, it's an ongoing problem and trying to, that, that seven, per, per, the population density of seven is common and it's what we call a frontier county. Um, and so the, I think Piscataquis is the only one of two frontier counties east of the Mississippi. Oh. What that does do is leave out a lot of counties that are smaller. I, I think we need to look at that um, and, and bump those up. I mean, if transportation difficulties are transportation difficulties, if you think about it. So if you look at Cumberland County, we're considered an urban county or a metro county by all measures. But if you start going to the west of Portland, it gets pretty rural quickly once you pass the Gorham line and you get Standish and the surround and the surrounding communities. I don't know exactly where the line is drawn, but Buxton and Hollis, um, and out towards Bridgeton, even though Portland is a uh, fairly well-populated county, those people still have the same transportation difficulties. And it's, it, it's a problem I think we need to wrestle with more and figure out some of the funding mechanisms. Because I would argue that for many elderly and veterans and people with disabilities, it's an important aspect of keeping them engaged in the community. Do you know of all the things that are going on in the federal level and the money that's coming to folks? Is there, do you, are you aware of any um, program or group that is really looking at this issue about how to solve transportation issues in rural areas? Not off the top of my head, no. Um, one, one option, maybe one resource that we could consider is that rural that hospitals that are tax exempt, and that's most of the hospitals in Maine, are required to conduct a community health needs assessment every year. Every three years, I should say, excuse me. And then they have to develop a strategy plan to identify the needs that they could target. And they do this as a part of the accountability for their tax exemptions. They also have to do something called community benefit reporting. I think hospitals are a resource that could be pulled into this mix. They're required to provide some, give back to the community for their tax exemptions. Um, I think many of the needs assessments that I've seen uh, target the issue of transportation for the elderly. And so let's, let's have a community uh, discussion of how they might play a role. It could be a use of a van to transport patients. Um, I've seen hospitals, there's a, a hospital that I visited in uh, Tehachapi, California, that had a program for the elderly and they were having mental health issues. And one of the big problems in getting folks to use the service was transportation. So they, they bought a van and they used that to transport <laughs> patients to the program. And I think some of our hospitals may do some transportation here. There's a lot of th good things being done under community benefit by tax exempt hospitals. None of it's bad, but not all are as equally important. I would argue that the best thing we can do is 
is to help prioritize what they can do best. And quite honestly, as, as taxpayers and folks who support their community benefits and their tax exemptions, we should be engaged with hospitals and, and giving our feedback uh, to, what, to them as to what's important to us. So uh, it's, uh, I would not say that hospitals aren't doing anything, they are, but I don't know that all the activities are as useful as they could be. And that's well, up to us as members of the community to go on. That's a very interesting um, point. Uh, if you've just joined us, you're listening to 50 Plus Aging in Rural Maine on WERU-FM. I'm your host, Suzanne Carmichael, and today we are discussing five major health issues facing older rural Maine residents. My guest is John Gale, president of the National Rural Health Association. And John, as report mentions, even when there are transportation options, as few as they might be, there's a problem with public awareness of the options. And let me give an example. The Deer Isle Town Manager Jim Fisher provided me with a list of five medical transportation options for Deer Isle residents, but some are problematic. For example, I live in Deer Isle. If I had to see a specialist in Bangor, there's transportation from Ellsworth to Bangor, but I'd have to get to Ellsworth to take advantage of that. And of the five options that Jim mentioned, each has their own phone number, eligibility criteria, and service areas. There's no single phone number to call. And I also researched whether calling 211 would provide medical transportation options, and I couldn't find any listed on their website. So my question is, what is the solution? Do any rural areas or counties in the country that you know of have either a single phone number for folks to call to find medical transportation or a single website or some other solution? Not that I'm aware of, and that's part of the problem is that each service, our services are fragmented in the community and in most communities. And so they don't all have the same phone number. And that's perhaps something that, that communities can do is to provide a resource directory either on their websites or a list of phone numbers. I don't know if we can go as far as encouraging them all to use one central distribution point, but can we collect the information so it's easily accessible to people when they need it? And I think that's a, a, an ongoing problem. Um, we know that many people in rural communities and many rural elderly just aren't aware of all the services that exist in the community. There's no one good place. and you know, they sometimes think that what that the lack of transportation or other issues is just a function of living where they do, and they don't know that there are services available to them. So making those services available and promoting them uh, in different places would be just a relatively simple but great service. Is that something else um, playing on what you just said about hospitals? Um, is that something else that um, hospitals might undertake to provide some kind of service like that uh, in oh. their communities? Would that work? Or is that so something that needs to be done on a nonprofit um, organizational level? Well, I, I don't, I think they could do it. Um, in fact, I think many hospitals do have service directories they put together because they often 
they're aware that their patients have transportation difficulties or have other access issues, and they try to do that. The question is, how easily is it accessible? Sometimes, you know, I, I look at websites and I, I struggle to find my way around them. They're not always as intuitive. So perhaps if they think about that and, or, and again, I, I think much of what we need to do is bring communities, all segments of the community together to have a discussion of what the needs are and how to make services available and and known to people. Um, let's move on to the second challenge mentioned in the association's report, and that is healthcare access. What problems, going beyond now transportation, what problems do older rural residents have concerning healthcare access? What, is, what does that really mean? Access is really, it, there are a couple of dimensions of access. One obvious is the simple one of, can I get to a service I need when I need it? Um, and that's, that's a function of where they live. So some communities like Greenville, uh, um, Pittsfield, and others, Blue Hill, have hospitals in the community. Others don't. But what we find is that many rural communities, they may have some basic primary care services, but if you need anything specialized, mental health services, substance use, uh, orthopedics, any kind of uh, specialty care, you're required to travel uh, quite a distance. I remember interviewing some folks in Greenville um, so many years back, and they, were, they had to go to Bangor to get some of the services they needed because that was as close as it was uh, they could get to it. And so you have that issue of, is the service available um, in the community or if it requires transportation, how far away is it? So that's one aspect of, of um, access. And then the other is the hours of, of operation. Uh, it's maybe a little less important for the elderly, but you know, if somebody's working full-time or they don't have transportation, maybe they rely on a child or a daughter or a son or a neighbor to transport them to a service, but that person is working, then a service that closes at five o'clock isn't very helpful. So it's, it's both, is it available at all? What are the hours of operation? And then an actual, a, a dimension of access that I think is really important we don't talk about is how acceptable is the service? Most of us like to have some input and some say over selecting a service, uh, our healthcare providers. And because of the limited resources and the limited number of people practicing in rural communities, they don't always have that choice. You now, it may be um, something as simple as, as a woman wanting to see a female physician. Not uncommon that, that asked for it could be an LGBTQ elderly person who wants someone who at least is familiar and aware of the medical issues related to their, their, their needs. Um, so that is an important part of access, which I, I don't think we talk about is how easy is it to find someone that, that we're comfortable with, we can confide in, we can build a relationship with, and then has the, has the knowledge of our particular situation. And that's true for um, indigenous populations. It's true for people who may have come into the community uh, as immigrants. You know, we know in Maine that a, a number of the Somali population that 
that emigrate to the state tend to move out towards rural communities because they have some agricultural background. Do the, do the providers have enough understanding of their needs and their culture to be able to help them? Those are very interesting points, John. Um, I wanted to mention uh, uh, another area that has to do with access, um, and that's nursing home availability. Uh, another AARP main volunteer mentioned to me recently that right now there are zero nursing home beds available, at least in her area. And the Deer Isle, uh, we just lost our, it, our nursing home just closed. And she said that her local hospital, one quarter of the beds have people in them who should be in nursing homes, but there's nowhere for them to go. And she also told me that the uh, CEO of Maine Health said that their efforts to support more of these folks at home with extra help from home healthcare agencies had run into the problem that the home healthcare option is only available to people who can be rehabilitated to live independently after uh, they've been in the hospital. So um, that won't work for people that are chronically ill. Um, any thoughts or anywhere in the country that is dealing with this uh, shortage of nursing home beds, um, particularly in rural areas? Well, we've struggled with the availability of nursing home beds in Maine for quite some time. And you've hit one of the key problems. There's a distinction between specialized home care, like in a skilled nursing facility, where someone has the ability, there's a, a medical reason for being there. And then the longer term needs of individuals who can no longer live alone. It's not necessarily a medically driven, but it's a function of age and, and their ability to, to navigate day-to-day -day living needs. And this has been a problem for a long time in Maine. Part of it is it's very expensive that, that long-term care, long-term residential uh, is very expensive. Medicaid pays for some of it after an individual has spent down their resources um, and I think the problem is getting worse at the moment because COVID has, has, has created staffing issues, um, particularly the mandate around, um, around vaccinations. It's upsetting a lot of folks. And a lot of the nursing homes are concerned that if they enforce the mandate too strongly, then they'll lose even more individuals that you that can go on to find other jobs. So I, I think it's going to be one of the big problems for the next 10 to 20 years. Our population is aging overall. Maine's population is heavily weighted towards the elderly. Rural communities are aging. And I think we haven't really wrestled with this situation as well as we could. I don't know if there's a great solution. I have been to some hospitals that have use excess beds to provide nursing home services and they built them into this into their system um, and it, it works but I think it depends on community to community and whether or not the community the hospital has the resources to do it long-term care is very expensive and it's not well paid for and so I think we need to begin looking at other models that may may be able to work. And a combination of age, aging at home, which most folks will want to do, but there may be a point where they cannot. Um, Ireland and other countries have done some long-term, some work with 
long-term senior housing and I think might be worth looking at. So I think we have to look at the nursing home industry and the needs of the elderly in terms of residential care very seriously and perhaps with a different eye uh, because it's not going, the problem's going to get worse. And uh, just a couple other things um, before we leave uh, the access. Um, I believe there's a lack of geriatric medical services or doctors that are trained in geriatric um, in rural areas and caregiver support, palliative care. Um, some of these I'll be um, having whole programs on um, mm -hmm. in the future. But before we leave, um, I'd like to address the telehealth issue. Um, and obviously, if you break your arm, um, having telehealth isn't going to help you out. But um, to what extent do you see telehealth, which has been obviously used a lot more during the pandemic, as addressing some of these rural health issues? Are there areas where it works better than others? Um, realizing, of course, that people have, have to have access to a computer to do it. Um, just like some of your thoughts on that topic. Well, I think telehealth, it, it's, it, telehealth has come into its own um, with the pandemic. Um, I think we have to look at how well it's been done. I think we need to understand, we, we made a big change all at once without a whole lot of planning. And while I believe truly that, that it had done good things and, it, and the hospitals and providers took advantage of a situation, took advantage is the right word, they, they used the technology to be able to do the best that they could. But I think we have to understand how well they did that and make sure that we, we do it better moving forward. But I think telehealth has got to be the way that we begin to move towards health equity. I've always believed that rural people should have the same level of access to basic services as any other person, with they, whether they live in Portland or Bangor or Fort Kent or Blue Hill. Um, but it means we have to do that differently. We're not going to get we're not gonna get an equal number of services to go to rural communities because it's just not financially viable. So that means perhaps we have to think differently about that. Telehealth is one of those opportunities. So uh, it can work really well for monitoring of chronic conditions. Many, many people in rural communities uh, and the elderly included in that have high rates of chronic illness. We could use telehealth to do chronic care management and monitoring. We could use telehealth to give them access to specialty care, um, geriatric, uh, geriatricians and, and uh, specialty services that are needed. But I think we have to figure out a way to do that, that, that people are comfortable with. Um, I, think the elder, I think people will use telehealth, but it's got to be a more organized use of the service than perhaps it has been today. But I think that is one of the solutions to, to the access issues in rural communities is to use telehealth. That may mean that it would be worth investing in providing people without computers with, with computers for their use. Uh, that, you know, it's a relatively inexpensive thing to do um, and it could solve a lot of issues. And I think also beginning to think about our systems of care. You know, we, we um, we don't always, we don't organize healthcare very well in this country. It's driven primarily by market forces. 
And so can we begin thinking about, all right, we have this population in, uh, in Fort Kent and they're not getting these services. How do we get Northern Lights and other providers who serve that area to work together? Uh, reduce the unnecessary competition and expand the mix of things that people need. So using telehealth, trying to organize our services differently, developing some transportation as part of the service package, not as a, uh, not as just a, a nicety, but it's part of the day-to-day -day service to, to deliver care to, to rural people. Do you see this happening anywhere in the country? Are there any models that, um, or people that are starting to think about it? One of, the, one of the hospitals that I'd mentioned earlier in um, in northern Minnesota up, along, up on the Canadian border in Lake of the Woods was doing that. They're the hospital that the, uh, the local Lutheran community, Lutheran congregation managed the nursing home in the community. They were having a really hard time. So the hospital came in, took over with the blessing of, of the community the nursing home, relocated it closer to the hospital, built linkages between the two, made arrangements so that there was much better connection. So yes, there, I think there are instances of communities pulling together and beginning to rationalize their delivery systems. And I think to me is, that's really the important piece. We, what rural people and rural elderly need hospital care, but they don't need it as much as we used to. We, we do much less, inpatient care than we ever did before because our ability to do things on an outpatient basis has changed. So can we begin to take certainly these small hospitals and move them in and build in some long-term care capacity and build them more into a hub of care for the community versus an inpatient setting and an emergency department? We've got to expand the models so that we are delivering the services people need. Um. That's very interesting. I, I want to ask one other question going back to telehealth. Um, does telehealth work uh, well for delivering mental health services? It's probably the most common use for oh. telehealth is mental health services. And if you think about it, the reason is that much of it doesn't involve having to touch or physically manipulate or palpate the patient. It's all talk therapy. So that can be done. And one of the one of the things that might be really helpful, traditionally telehealth replicated the data, an office visit using television. So you had to, you had to have the, be, the patient had to be in another designated healthcare facility and the distance site provider had to be in his or her place. And then it, it basically just did the same thing they do face-to-face -face, but through television. So can we do that differently now? If it is just talk therapy, can we use the telephone? Can we use um, other technologies? Uh, do, should a patient have to go to a, a hospital or a clinic to, to, just to tie into to the, te to the, the televideo consult? No, they, we, we need to think about it differently, but it, it's absolutely the most useful piece. And at the same time, we can use the technology to bring in specialists. So it may be difficult to get to a psychiatrist, but if a family doctor can manage the meds with the consultative service of a psychiatrist, that's one way of making that service work by elevating the ability of the primary care people to do medication management and deal with more complex patients. So that sounds like you need to have a case manager 
for things like this to coordinate <clears throat> to coordinate things like that is is that another uh area in rural areas where uh there aren't care managers or case managers that look at gee this person has mental health problems but they also see um you know a cardiologist etc is that another area lacking in rural areas i think it's getting better um i think everyone in healthcare is recognizing the importance of care management and that in being able to help people work between you know your example of someone with cardiac problems and and a behavioral health diagnosis so oftentimes cardiac meds and and psychiatric meds will in, will conflict with one another and create problems so having someone who looks at the whole person's care reads their charts sort of has responsibility for that is very important and more and more rural providers are doing that it's to me though it, it suggests perhaps that maybe we need to think about empowering teams of people to care for patients that much of care management doesn't need a doctor to do it it doesn't need a nurse practitioner or a pa um, but they do need to work together so can we create better teams and i th and we're starting to see that in many many locations you're listening to 50 plus aging in rural maine on weru fm i'm your host suzanne carmichael and today we're discussing five major health issues facing older rural residents my guest today is John Gale, president of the National Rural Health Association. Uh, the third challenge that your association report mentioned, we've already talked about a bit, but I'd like to maybe go into it in a bit more depth. Um, and they said that the third challenge was the social connectedness. And could you go in a bit more detail to why that's an important health concern? Um, for older folks um, beyond feeling lonely, et cetera. Um, but talk a bit more about that issue, if you would. The whole issue of social isolation and social connectedness is increasingly recognized and it's an important part of keeping people healthy and, and engaged and vital. If you think about it, uh, for people with beginning of the beginnings of cognitive decline, um, early Alzheimer's, the ability to engage with people and stay focused and stay um, active can at least moderate the decline and help them to live uh, a little more um, independently than they might have. So to me, that's, that's just a very big problem. And it's how do we do that? I mean, we are social beings. And there is very good evidence that we live longer, we live more happily if we're engaged with other people and with things that, uh, that we find stimulating. And if we don't, and so part of that is really what are the resources are available? Uh, in Portland, you can go a lot of places. You can walk down the street. We have a major public library with multiple satellites in Portland. Uh, we have social organizations. We have um, community theater. That doesn't exist as easily in rural communities. And then it becomes harder for people to engage. So it's really important for us to think about how to do that 
Uh, are there senior centers that, that can be done? The, uh, Brunswick has uh, an evening senior group that I, if I remember correctly, um, gets together and they do everything from book groups to, um, to uh, site visits and tours, uh, for lack of a better way of phrasing it. Uh, something we have here at the University of Southern Maine is something called the OLLI program, which is the Older Lifetime Learning Institute. And um, it really engages people in, in a great way. So how do we begin to do something like that in rural communities? Um, and one of the things that I think is really important is to engage younger people with the elderly in their community to learn from them. I, Young people don't tend to appreciate the elderly as much as they do, but I think part of that is because we've, we've tended to separate them. Um, I know of a couple of programs in Alaska that deal with substance use problems for the youth, and they, have elder, they bring the elders of the community into their groups, and they have a senior spiritual uh, leader who is an older person in the tribe and some of it is just helping them to connect to their roots and they uh, what about their history what about growing up uh, I remember in uh, growing up in in Lebanon uh, during the 60s and 70s we had um, it was really interesting the Grange had a mixture of the older farmers and agricultural folks in the area and the younger group, which at the time they were the back to the land, the, the lack of a better of a phrase, they were the hippies, but they engaged at the, they engaged at that level because the, the older folks realized that these folks really did care about the land and wanted to learn. So can we build social communities? Um, and the fourth challenge that was mentioned in the report is nutrition. And I wondered what the primary relation of nutrition issues to health issues for older rural adults is, and why is it different for uh, rural folks than urban residents? We find that in rural communities, there just aren't the resources for healthy eating uh, and healthy food products. So if, um, if here in Portland, I can go to Shaw's or I can go to Hannaford and I can go to any of the Trader Joe's or um, any number of places, and I can buy healthy produce at a reasonable price. That's not always true in rural communities, so they have fewer food options. And growing up, we had we grew our own vegetables. We we kept animals for food uh, food purposes. A lot of people, if they aren't doing that anymore, aren't able to eat as healthily. So if you go to the local store, they may have lesser choices of of healthy food products. They may have, um, they may not be able to get fresh seafood. They may not be able to get green, uh, green, green products and vegetables and fruit that is fresh and uh, ready to go. So it's, it's an access issue because we don't have the same type of stores available. And the last challenge the report mentions is rural poverty. Uh, which I'll also address um, more completely in a future show. What are the primary connections between poverty and rural health issues? Is it that all the other issues are exacerbated by poverty or, or something else? If you could expand on that uh, a bit for me. Well, I think it's, it, it, it's exacer poverty exacerbates a lot of the problems. So if, you, if you're poor, 
you may not have, you less likely to have adequate transportation. Uh, you may not be able to eat as well. You may not be able to afford the out-of-pocket costs to get the care that you need. Even with supplemental insurance, Medicare doesn't cover all services that people may need, so they may not access those. So poverty, it also creates, um, it, it's, it's a building function on the problems of, of life, that it makes it difficult for people to stay as healthy. And the, the people at lower poverty levels tend to have much greater problems with chronic disease. If they're not eating as well. They may tend to be diabetic. Uh, they, may not, they may not be able to afford insulin, which has gone through the roof. Um, so it's a variety of issues. And I should say that rurality is also one of those exacerbating factors. Being poor has a definite impact on health from a variety of factors. Being poor and being a person of color may, is even worse than just being poor. And then being poor, a person of color and living in a rural community tends to have an even greater uh, impact on health. So these sort of build on one another and it's just sort of the complications of the things that we see, but poverty, is a bad starting place. It starts as children, they may not get the same level of education, they may not be able to access the same resources for sports or recreation, they may not have some of the other resources available to them, and that just carries on throughout life. And after a certain point, uh, when someone's retired and elderly, they, they may not be able to keep their house up the way they would like to. So you tend to have problems, you might have problems with mold and dust and other things that can exacerbate health issues. Um, we've been to places and talked to people that weren't, were taking their meds because they couldn't be, they didn't have a refrigerator to keep them cold. Um, they couldn't afford it. And so they're just, poverty is just, a, it, it's, it's, it's a poor starting point and it carries on throughout someone's life. And um, we don't have a lot of time left, but um, we've been discussing healthcare challenges that face older rural residents, but are there any bright spots on the horizon? Are there any positive trends or pending federal or state legislation that might make a difference concerning rural health? Um, and is there anything else that we haven't, that I haven't brought up um, <laughs> about rural health? And we only have, we don't have another three hours. So. Well, I, I think I think one of the advantages of, of being in a rural community is people do look out for one another. Um, we tend to take care of our neighbors more than we might have other than in some other communities. There is tend a tendency to have some at least connection and willingness to do that. So some of the bright spots that I've seen are the community um, community connections that the Go, that work very well. well. You bring faith-based groups together. You bring in the Kiwanis or the Rotarians. Um, you engage Cub uh, Scout scouting groups, Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts, Girl Scouts, with the elderly from a learning experience. Um, big brothers and big sisters. Um, we've seen adopt grandparent programs that all can engage people. But I think there's a, a community in Vermont in. Uh, Mount, with Mount Escutney uh, Hospital 
that really just reaches out into the community and they network with probably 30 different people throughout Windsor County, 30 different, um, not people, excuse me, 30 different organizations within Windsor County. And they do their best to try to make use of the resources they have and not try to trip over one another. So uh, I, I think one of the bright spots is that we, we can make a difference and we can think about how to do these things. In rural communities, it's easier to engage. If I want to figure out who to engage with in Portland, you have to, is it the city council? There are any number of organizations, but there are fewer of them and they're willing to listen. So if we can get the communities thinking about this and how do they, treating the elderly as a resource, and that can contribute to the community. Uh, I do think that, that there are many places that are doing that. And that, that would be what I see as an important opportunity is let's get everyone together. What do we need, how to do it, and how do we take it, care of one another is the, is the bright spot in many rural communities. And is there anything that, any legislation that could be, um, done either on the state level or maybe federal that would um, help with answer any of these challenges that we've we've mentioned today do you are there any states that are um, mandating hospitals to uh, consider some of these other somewhat more subtle issues um Boston, massachusetts new hampshire uh, and a handful of other states have community benefit legislation that that, that push hospitals and, and require them to be more transparent about what they do. Um, so that's one option. Um, again, I wouldn't suggest that they're not doing, that they're not trying to be helpful, but there are priorities. And what can we do that's best for the community? And that will vary from place to place. Uh, there's a group up in Washington County that's been working with the community to bring people together. Uh, in a way that I, I think is really helpful. Everyone gets asked to the table to provide their input. Um, so often when hospitals, or in the past, hospitals have tended to reach out to the people they know. If you think about it, who's on the hospital board? Bankers, lawyers, business people. Do they bring in the community and they bring in consumers? I think that's really necessary. So. Um, and I would like us to think about at the federal level, um, which would have some implication at the state is, what kind of models of care can we build for rural communities? If, if we don't need as many inpatient beds, but we know that down the road as our communities age even more, long-term care is gonna be a vital issue. How can we change these models to make that more efficient and more effective? And is that the kind of thing that the National Rural Health Association um, works on? Um, could you, uh, in these last few minutes, tell us a bit more about the association and its purpose and goals, things that you're involved with? Sure, we have 21,000 some odd members across the 50 states. And we represent a broad spectrum of healthcare, hospitals, clinics, public health, uh, state government, um, a variety of philanthropic organizations. And our focus is on the health of rural people. Our goal is to support rural providers and think about the things that are needed for the future. So we've been spending, certainly during COVID, we spent a lot of time thinking about how to message the need for vaccinations, 
and how to help hospitals and clinics and providers stay afloat. Uh, we're currently working on a future of rural health uh, paper. Um, we're doing it a little bit differently this time and I'm getting to lead the visioning piece, really thinking about where we are now, what's different from the past 10 years where, uh, of rural health and what do we think is gonna be an issue going forward and how do we have to change things? Because I, I think we have to be proactive. This, the graying of America, the silver tsunami, whatever folks, whatever metaphor folks use is not going to go away. And it's going to be increasingly important that we begin to understand how to support people as they live at home? How do we keep them at home as long as possible so they can age in place? Once that's no longer possible, what other services are needed? And then how do we afford that? As, as a society, I think that's one of our biggest challenges moving forward. We have never dealt with the, law, the issue of long-term care very well. And if people are interested in um, learning more about the, your association, um, where, how can they get in touch with it? Do you have a website you'd like to mention? We, we do, um, and I don't know the website URL off the top of my head, but if you just go to Google or a search engine and type in National Rural Health Association, uh, it will take you right to our website and has a lot of our papers and our information on it. Uh, we have here our federally funded research center. If you typed in Maine Rural Health Research Center, you would get the papers that I do and many of my and what my colleagues do. You mentioned Eric Azilla's recent paper. Uh, there's a lot of resources there. And if folks have questions, we can try to point them in the right direction. And just in the last minute or two, could you tell me a little bit about what the Maine Rural Health Center is and what it does? We are federally funded to do research on rural health issues. We're located at the University of Southern Maine. We've been doing this since I think 1992. Um, and it, uh, we take on and study a lot of rural issues related to access, behavioral health and healthcare, small hospitals. Um, we have uh, just a fabulous team uh, and we view ourselves as being part of the, the community. And so uh, we try to reach out and address issues that are important to rural people. Well, thank you so much, John. This has been really interesting and in-depth uh, information for all of us. You've been listening to 50 Plus Aging in Rural Maine, a project of AARP Maine in cooperation with WERU-FM. My guest today was John Gale, president of the National Rural Health Association. You can learn more about his work. I did find the URL at rural, R-U-R-A-L health.us. This show is archived at weru.org, and you can subscribe to our podcasts there as well, so you never have to miss a show. If you'd like to contact me with questions, comments, or to suggest, suggest topics for this show, or if you'd like to read my AARP main blog, Aging Fearlessly, please send an email to news at weru.org and put 50 plus in the subject line. Next month, I'll be discussing digital equity, issues, and solutions. Please join me then. Thanks so much, John, for joining me. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Bye-bye.